I'm Sean Hazlett. I'm the host of Through the Glass Darkly. We have a great show for you today. My guest, Sean McPhee, is a professor at the Atlantic Council in Georgetown University, and he's also the author of New Rules for War. Today, both of us are going to analyze the Russian-Ukrainian situation based on both of our unique sources of expertise. He was a, an officer in the 82nd Airborne. He spent many years as a private military contractor in Africa, uh, Burundi and Liberia, to name but a few. And he's also, you know, his book covers the future of warfare that is based on a move away from what we've been focused on in the United States and, and Great Britain as examples on fighting kind of a World War II style military conflict. And his lesson is that Russia and China are not playing by those rules and we need to be prepared to handle um, much, much more shadowy wars, things like cyber attacks, little green men phenomena, little green men phenomena, etc. So I'm really looking forward to it from my side. I spent five years as an expert in Soviet armored doctrine and tactics. So I have perspective from there and I've also spent time working at the Stanford Harvard Preventive Defense Project where I can also provide some expertise. Either way, I think war is coming, but and I think it has the possibility of uh, greatly expanding beyond what we think of as a traditional regional spat. And I think there are significant sources of risk that we need to be mindful of. So we'll get into all that, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you do, hit like and subscribe, share, and hit notify. Thank you very much. I look forward to seeing you today. conquest of the Balkans, the Nazis had a solid front from the Black Sea to the Baltic, but the Russians had built themselves a buffer to take some of the steam out of the Nazi punch no matter where it landed. But where would it land? When the blow came, it was from five different directions, and from the north, one extra, just for luck. That was the big day. As dawn broke, nearly 200 Axis divisions. More than two million men plunged into a front 2,000 miles long, reaching from the White Sea to the Black. Their aim, the annihilation of the Red Army and a decisive battle on the frontier. The offensive started along the whole length of the front, but was concentrated on three main objectives. Leningrad, Moscow, and Kiev, the capital of the Ukraine. All right, so I'm with Sean McPhee, who I told you a little bit about in my initial video. Uh, Sean, why don't you, you just briefly introduce yourself, uh, you know, tell the audience what your background is and uh, why you're kind of the perfect person to talk about this little situation we got going on between Russia and Ukraine. Right yeah, now. sure. It's, it's a pleasure to be on your podcast. Uh, so my name is Dr. Sean McFate. I, um, I am a former U.S. Army paratrooper 
um, who then left the military to become a private military contractor globally. Um, some would say mercenary. I would like to avoid that term, but, you know. Um, and then I had an epiphany at some point that I was in Africa at a place undisclosed, and I realized that there was nobody old in my business. And just, I started just so to you know, Just so you know, your bio says Liberia at one point and Burundi at another, so. It wasn't, it was, it was not those, it was in that okay. realm of Central Africa, that's all I'll say. Um, and uh, yeah, I realized that um, um, I had fallen into a, a strange line of work that didn't have old people in it. And I was like, beginning to question life choices at that point. So I left all that to think deeply about some of the things I'd seen, things like they used to be routine CIA special operations forces were being outsourced to mm -hmm. the private sector and, and not just by the US government, which was a client of mine, but by Fortune 50 companies and by the super rich and you name it. And so I ended up... Um, doing, um, you know, getting a PhD. And um, now I'm a professor at the National Defense University at Georgetown School of Foreign Service. I'm a think tank um, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And I spend a lot of time thinking about the future of warfare and what we need to do to prepare for it, because I'm convinced that Washington, D.C. groupthink is not quite where it needs to be. Okay, so with that in mind, right now we have 100,000 plus troops uh, along the border in Ukraine, so the Donbass region, Crimea. Uh, there's some troops that are in Russia about either about to move in or are currently moving through Belarus uh, to, you know, and they're part of this operate this uh, massive war game that they're they're conducting. In your opinion, what's next? Well, first of all, nobody really knows. And I think Putin is keeping it close to the vest deliberately because that's his way of warfare, strategic deception. Um, the, the pundits or experts, not even pundits, the experts I know in DC whom I, I trust, they're all over the map on this. Mm -hmm. So some like, um, you know, Vindeman, Alex Vindeman, who's a colleague of mine, uh, some of you might remember him from the the Trump, whatever, the, the congressional hearings. He believes it could be an all-out war, and that if that's the case, it would be catastrophic, not for the region, but for the world. You have other people who believe that, who also believe it could be a very close to an all-out war. There's other scenarios that, um, you know, Putin is just saber-rattling to get some sort of you know, bargaining chip international negotiation, and he wants to do a soft regime change in Kiev or Kiev, uh, depending if you speak Russian or Ukrainian. Others believe that he wants um, to have a land bridge between the Crimea and Russia through like Mars, uh, I forget the name of the city, but basically making Ukraine a landlocked country like Bolivia. And then he can sort of really have, you know, a tight leash around their neck. Um, you know, all of this, I mean, I think we don't know exactly what he's going to do, but here's what I think he's, he's not going to do. He's not playing 
by a Cold War rule book, which is what Anthony Blinken is doing. So Anthony Blinken's our Secretary of State, Jake Sullivan's our National Security Advisor. Um, you know, Anthony, I think Jake is less, you know, what's whatever sub-mediocre maybe uh you know Blinken the, thought is did, very, the, the thought did the thought has occurred to me and and many others and, and many other people and and, and they're not uh, all, I mean, you know literally you just have to look at the execution on the withdrawal from afghanistan as a, as a textbook jake jake sullivan got his job because he was hillary clinton's bitch boy at the end of the yeah, he's day. a politico he's a politico yeah and he's got no creds and nobody really in the national security establishment other than the president really thinks highly of him. Blinken's a different story. I mean, Blinken's been around. He's a, he's a pro. Whether you agree with him or not, he, he's sort of like John McCain. I mean, like whether you agree with him or not, he knows his stuff. Right. Um, and, uh, and he's very sort of, in my mind, he's mired in the 19th and 20th centuries rules of diplomacy. And of course, Putin and Xi Jinping, they're not playing by that royal book. They're making it up in the 21st century. And so I think we that's the, the delta that I'm concerned about is that we are fighting, there's an adage that generals always fight the last war, especially if they won it. Blinken's doing that with the Cold War. So he's doing Cold War ploys, but, but you know, uh, Putin is not playing that same game. So um, that is the problem. Yeah, I, I, I am more kind of akin to or closer to the viewpoint of Alex Lindemann here. Mm -hmm. I think this is now, now I don't know, I don't know how you characterize it. If, if, if when you say kind of an all out conflict, it's a World War II-esque conflict that you're talking about with Lindemann. Or if you're just talking an all-out conflict, because I would there's certainly a distinction. I mean, what yeah. what was what was your character characterization of his his viewpoint from that? Well, I think he he envisions um, like a sort of a conventional war type of fight that um, you know could escalate to something greater. Um, but you know, bef before we get into that, we have to think about what is Putin playing at, right? I mean, like, what does he want? So let's step back from Ukraine. You know, Putin's way of war for the last 10 years has been sneaky warfare. Yep. When he wants to take something like the Crimea or something else, what he does, he doesn't have a blitzkrieg into, like in 2014, he didn't have a blitzkrieg into, into Eastern Ukraine. He could have done that easily. What he did and which befuddles you know, the, the Washington consensus is that he uses dis disinformation to create a fog of war all over Eastern Ukraine. And then he sends in these covert units like Spetsnaz, special forces, little green men, mercenaries like the Wagner group, these astroturfed fake separatist Russian, you know, units that are controlled by the GRU, which is the Russian intel military intelligence agency. Yep. And loads of propaganda, right? I mean, they shot down a Boeing 777 and, you know, no consequences. And when the West was still figuring out what was going on on the ground, the Crimea was a fait accompli. So that's what he does. So this whole thing of like having tanks, like 1942 style, it's not his way of war. And that's not what this whole thing is about. 
what this whole thing is about is he wants to test American resolve to stick up for Europe and NATO. And he's, he's choosing a non-NATO country, Ukraine, as the test victim, and he's putting pressure on it, and he's going to see if we blink. And of course, not just us, but like, you know, the, the Baltics are very, very concerned about this. Everybody is, except for maybe Germany, which is a business partner now of Russia, if you can believe it, mm-hmm. after World War One or two, excuse me. Well, it and, didn't help that they got kind of uh, you know, started decommissioning their nuclear power plants. Right? Yeah. They just, they, just put, they just put a noose right around their neck with you know, right. oil and natural gas. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's. So what, what's going on here is that he is, this is all armed politics on like a, a world stage. He's communicating to the world via tank movements, but it's not about, um, what he's trying to do is he's trying to test our resolve. It's not about really conquering Ukraine. The, the problem is if he feels like he's backed into a corner to save his credibility, then what will he do then? And so that is where we're left. We're escalating up but we don't know where we're escalating to. The problem is, is there's an old adage that says the only thing you can't do with bayonets is sit on them. And <laughs> I, I think that while there's, you know, a huge percentage of what Putin's doing is the continuation of shadow war. I think this is going to be the first time that he comes out fighting with with conventional forces that said um i i agree with vindeman's assessment that this could be this could go global but i don't think it goes global from a conventional perspective yeah and by that i mean um there's a there's lots of cyber there's there's tons of zero day vulnerabilities that we don't know about on our electric grid all sorts of places and again i don't have any insight into this but this is just what I would do if I were Putin. It's probably what the U.S. does to their power grid, et cetera. Right. So there's this is a this is an instance where he can reach out and touch us, and most Americans I don't think realize that. The other piece is I don't think it will. While there will be a, a you know limited use of tanks and, and things like that, I think what what his end state is is to precipitate a leadership crisis in Ukraine. So I can envision having some some incident either inside Russia or uh, inside Ukraine where Russian citizens are threatened and uh, Putin has to kind of do a uh, Sudetenland light where he has to come to the rescue of, you know, poor Russians who've been um, and there's there's plenty of, of grist for the mill for him for him to do that, right? So um, you know, as an example, there's been a hacktivist campaign on Belarus's rail rail system that's preventing Russian troops from coming on, and that gives him you know yet another pretext to do something. Um, now, where do I think he'll go? I think there's a good shot that he his his main target is Kiev, um, where you know you come in through the north um, with with you know, so you can circumvent the a, you know any river crossings, um, and then you just kind of put pressure elsewhere. Maybe to a limited extent, seize that land bridge that you're talking about. And mm-hmm. I think that's it. And I think once he gets a leadership change at the top of of Ukraine's leadership, then he pulls the tanks out, declares victory, and he just waits until you can move on to the Balkans. 
not the Balkans, um, the, the Baltic states. Um, yeah. The fact that the Swedes have moved forces into Gotland is a huge alarm. It raises huge alarm bells for me. I don't know what intelligence they've seen, but I feel like there's there's some aspect of this that's different. But again, all the things that you talk about in New Rules for War, or you know, for War, I think uh, there's going to be a huge element of that. But he's definitely, yeah. in my opinion, he's going to be using tanks. You don't position that many systems and things like that on the border and not use tanks. Yeah. Well, it's a great question. I, I think it's it's easy to do. First of all, when we say conventional war, what we're really meaning is like the war of World War II, for example, like state on state, industrial military against industrial military, sort of a, you know, people wearing uniforms, you know, somewhat abiding by the laws of armed conflict <laughs> uh, versus what we've seen in the last 70 years, which has been the absence of that for the most part. Um, I mean, w w the last 70 years, we can count the number of conventional wars really on just two hands, right. whereas you know, unconventional wars, which is sort of like everything else has just been an, every, you know, just been an explosion, literally. So this is one of the things that makes Ukraine today so enigmatic is nobody has seen this in Europe since 1939. And remember, this is not Putin's way of war. His way of war is totally unconventional to sneak in there and seize it before everybody knows to use cyber and to use, you know, things that we don't associate with conventional war. So what he's doing now is really armed diplomacy. Mm -hmm. And the question is, could we have a 1914 Sarajevo moment where like in World War One, where you know, a, a Serbian terrorist shoots or anarchists, as I would say in the day, shoots, you know, the number two guy in the Habsburg Empire, and that sets off a chain of events that leads into World War One. Um, so that's what Vindemann and others are sort of posturing, saying this is the threat, and it's a, it's a threat. Um, you know, but then the other question is, can we, uh, will it go down like that or not? I mean, we don't, Nobody says nobody really knows. It's been yeah. it's been eighty years since this was an issue in Europe. Well, and the issue too is in the in the near term. There's from a conventional perspective, there's not much the United States can do right away. I believe they have two active uh, kind of brigade combat uh, team size mm -hmm. elements in all of Europe right now, not including the nine thousand that Biden is planning on sending. Right, so yeah. there's. There, there's not much more that, that, that the United States can do in the near term. That said, there is vast potential for this thing to escalate, particularly along the dimensions of cyber warfare, as well as economic sure. warfare, right? In terms of targeting our financial system and, and things like that. And I think that's where most people don't, or most Americans don't realize how this, how this thing might shape or escalate. Additionally, yeah. additionally there's yeah. also... There's also what China's doing, on you know, in the in the in the background, which to me does not feel uncoordinated. But sorry, you're gonna yeah. <laughs> say something. No, I mean, first of all, the, if there's an attack, it will likely be after the Olympics because Russia doesn't want to take China's glory away from itself. From you know, they don't want to. So Russia and China, you know, like. <laughs> They're 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 friends of convenience for the moment, but they have hundreds of years of enmity, right? right? That neither side has forgotten about. But right now, they're they're 
they're odd bedfellows and and Putin doesn't want to step doesn't want to distract from Xi Jinping the glory of the Olympics so once that's over I think that is the window to see a potential aggressive move and and you there'll be things that you see on the surface and there'll be things that you don't see underneath that are much more long term which I think is what you're talking about so on the surface, you're going to see some World War, you could potentially see some World War II things going on, like tank on tank battles. Right. And the U.S. does not want to get involved in that because, A, Ukraine's not a, it's not a NATO country. Right. Uh, two is that, let's not forget, Ukraine is full of corrupt oligarchs. It's not like this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, you know, this beautiful Tibet or, you know, it's not some Shangri-La place. It's, it's like a poor version of Russia. You know, it's, right, right. Um, you know, it's, let's not romanticize what Ukraine is. Third, Americans are fatigued with war and military adventurism, fighting off on far off places for reasons they don't quite understand. I mean, Vietnam, Iraq and Afghanistan were not successes. Um, and, you know, and four, are we going to risk a nuclear war with Russia over Ukraine or Latvia or something? Nobody knows. Not even President Biden knows this. And that's the biggest X factor is what will the American people go for at this point? And that's part of what's influencing Putin's strategic calculus. He thinks that like Americans are tired of this sort of military adventurism. So if I'm going to test the resolve of NATO and America on a non-NATO country, this is a great time to do it. And also right before the American midterms. So I think that, you know, Putin's a shrewd strategist. Um, we don't know where to land. And not only that, even, even the timing from a tactical perspective and a regional strategic perspective, you know, it's perfect, right? You can you can shut off all those natural gas pipelines yeah. as leverage to get the Germans to back off, right? And to punish the Ukrainians. Um, additionally, again, on the, the timeline, um, right now the, the ground needs to harden for tanks, yeah. obviously, February is good for that. Also the length of the day is important, right? So January, the length of the day in that region is about 8.5 hours. Right. In February, it goes to about 10, but that window goes away. Uh, you know, you have longer days, obviously, in March, but you're not going to have the cold to really benefit, right. uh, you know, a Russian, a Russian advance. But I think this is part of Putin's grand vision to kind of gain back. I, I believe the what I've heard is for him, his greatest catastrophe that yeah. he saw was the fall of the Soviet Union. And right now he has. With all the reasons you said and many others, he has the U.S. at a point of weakness where he can kind of do what he's doing. Now, again, going back to the Chinese, those folks are true practitioners of new rules for war. You know, kind yeah. of the gray zone war where they're just flying aircraft over to just wear down the Taiwanese. Um, yeah. stuff, sort of stuff they're doing. They're rapidly trying to um, you know, move pipelines through Central Asia to reduce the, the critical threat that they have, the Strait of Malacca. So there's there's a ton of things that, that they're doing as well that um, certainly fits into this gray zone war. And, and, the, and the last point, so I can get, we'll get in a word edgewise, is what I worry about is 
right now Americans are very divided. And part of that is because of the Chinese and the, and, and the Russians who are using trolls and things like that to, to divide uh, through the internet research agency, et cetera. Um, so, you know, you're going to have, uh, you know, ways of, of, of doing things like that. Um, I'm going to change the subject really quick. Not, not really, but you talked about Putin operating in the shadows and things like that. And before we started recording this call, you talked about a little incident in 2018. What's your perspective? Like, first of all, what is the incident? And yeah. how does that embody kind of the way that Putin fights war? And what did it mean based on based on kind of the consequences of that action? What do you think Putin concluded? What do you think he learned? And what do you think he's going to, you know, how is he going to try to employ that in a different way next time? It's a lot of stuff sure. to unpack. So, I'm fascinated. <laughs> well, I will say that. Uh, let me start by saying that we're seeing in the Ukraine right now with Putin is very uncharacteristic of the way Russia fights war today. So an example of how they actually do fight war is this 2018 um, battle called the Battle of Kisham. And it happened in Eastern uh, Syria around you know February of 2018. And it was between uh, a group of 400 or so Russian speaking mercenaries called the Wagner Group and America's best troops, Delta Force, Green Berets, Marines, uh, and some, some Kurdish militia. And it was done kind of completely by surprise. So, and I've talked to people on all sides of this, because in my background, I know people in the Wagner Group, which is this Russian mercenary conglomerate, but it's not part of the Russian military. It's not, these are mercenaries from the former USSR orbit, shall we say. But is it, um, is it, is it not part of the Russian? I mean, not it's not part. No, it's not part. So do the they work Wagner for anybody group, else? Do they work for any other um, countries other than moment, Russia? But, you know, you could say that about Blockwater until Eric Prince yeah, started working yeah. for Abu Dhabi and China. And this is what mercenaries do, right? So just so your listeners know who don't know, the Wagner Group is um, Russia over the last 10 years has, has been creating, employing mercenaries and using them as the pointy edge of their spear. So in the last 10 years, Russia has launched expeditionary military operations into the Middle East and Africa for the first time since the Cold War, since the 1980s. But there's their leading edge of this of the well, I'm mixing metaphors here. It's not like Russian special forces or the FSB, which is the XKGB. Right. It's these mercenaries. And these mercenaries are drawn from they're all Russian speakers, they're drawn from the former USSR world. And a lot of like Spetsnaz special forces guys leading it. It's this is not a part of the Russian military, it's not a part of the GRU. Um, it's owned by this um, oligarch called Prigozhin, and Prigozhin is in is in Putin's inner circle, and he owns, by the way, not just the Wagner Group, but also the Internet Research Agency, also called the Troll Factory in Saint Petersburg. And what they do is they work, and he also owns an oil and gas company. And what they do is they all work in tandem. 
Um, and they do this on behalf of Russian national interests, but they're not part of the Russian military. So let's go back to 2018. What were these Russian mercenaries doing in secret in Syria? Well, they were helping, nominally, they were helping the uh, Syrian government kill ISIS. You know, we were all killing ISIS back in the day. Um, and, um, and they were trying to, to preserve the Syrian government. But if you're a mercenary, and I speak as somebody who has some familiarity with this, the question, whether it's now or the 12th century, you know, in, in, in medieval Europe is, how, are you gonna get how paid? do you get paid? Yeah, how do you get paid and not ripped <laughs> off? Because you both, you know, masters and mercenaries would rip each other off all the time because there's no contract enforcement in that world. It's, it's a world of sort of like Tony Soprano or something. Or, um, and so what they, off, what they sometimes did historically and today is they kind of go into business with each other and they hold a gun to each other's head. So what, what the government, you know, what Prigozhin did, he got, you know, the government of Syria says, look, ISIS is occupying these oil fields and these oil wells. It was a Conoco natural gas uh, or oil facility, actually, at the time. Mm -hmm. and, and Syria said to Wagner Group, look, if you can kill all those ISIS and get them out of there, we will give you, you know, rights to extract that natural resource to your, your brethren oil company, also under the oligarch, with Putin's blessing. And so everybody got their blessing and that they were moving out to, to seize this oil field or this oil refinery. I'm not sure exactly the technical language, but that's what they were doing. It's a conical facility. They had, according to uh, Russian mercenaries I've spoken to, they had some intelligence that there was a small possibility that American special forces could be there, but yeah, it's negligible. <laughs> and they rolled out with, you know, not just 400 mercenaries to 500, but they had tanks, artillery. These were not just disheveled mercenaries. They were highly trained, former Russian special forces, former like. By, by the way, how, how do Russian special, I mean, sorry, how do, how does a private military, you know, how do private military contractors get a hold of something like a tank? Like Blackwater couldn't buy a M1A1 Abrams. Yeah. Right, like, so what kind of tanks yeah. are we talking? T-80s? Well, T-70s. They're talking T-70s. Okay. I don't know if, if Syria gave them to them. Because remember, I mean, Russia had been benefiting Syria for a long time, or if these guys bought it in themselves. I mean, who knows? I mean, they had Russian artillery and tanks and, and um, armored personnel carriers. Uh, it was like a, like a mech battalion, but light side of mech battalion. And they were trained. And, um, and what happened, talking to Green Berets and Delta Force on the other side of that, is that they were at the Conoco facility and they saw, they didn't, nobody knew this was going to go on. I mean, the, the Russians were surprised and the Americans were surprised. Yeah, I, I, I they, heard Matt Mattis yeah. called the Russians and said, are yeah. you guys sending something over? And they're like, nope, they're, they're not, that we, nope, not that we know we're not. Yeah. Not that they know of. And it's probably true. Not that they knew this, because these are not part of the Russian military. They were free agents working on behalf, like privateers, working on behalf of Putin, but they're not like direct communicado. And that's part of the reason why Putin uses them, but we'll get back to that. So over, you know, here comes this mech battalion, and, and one of the Green Berets I spoke to says, 
And I asked him, like, how did you know who these guys, I mean, besides they're driving T-72s, not something, you know, ISIS drives or on uh, looser front. But he says they were fighting according to Soviet doctrine, which means the Soviet, like, SOPs or best practices. Is what oh, yeah. They were doing. Yeah. yeah. I, I, that's what I did for five years in the Army. I was, yeah, that's you know, like, like motorized rifle like, yeah. company. Yeah, that's rifle, right. Yeah. They were fighting just like that. They were so four detachment you know, and like you know all yeah, that good stuff. They go had ahead, their, their 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 troops come to like a hill's top crest line, hold position, and then the tanks would roll over and take the next like right to the bottom, the next hill, and then the troops would follow up, and they'd sort of like they'd creep up this way. And um, yeah, clear, the clearing green berets I talked, clearing yeah. invisibility lines. Yep, that's exactly right. And so the, yeah, the, yeah. The, our our American Green Berets spotted this and called this back in on the sat phone. Um, these members were members of JSOC, uh, which were uh, Joint Special Operations Command, which is like this super ultra secret oh, unit in the U.S. government. Your your old your old battalion commander in the eighty second yes. airborne is uh, so I read just so you know I just yeah. read I just read relentless strike so like oh. he <laughs> he really he really built up the capabilities of that organization mm -hmm. just so folks know Joint Special Operations Command operates kind of three tiers of units one, for, tier one units are kind of SEAL Team Six uh, Delta Force. Tier two units would be, you know, um, Army Special Forces, which are unconventional warfare, which in the course of that book, they kind of lost some of, you know, the focus has been more on direct action, which is just yeah. going out on missions and killing people directly as opposed to building unconventional forces and, and you know, helping a, a, a military, a foreign country's military build up, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's tier three forces which are like the Ranger Regiment and, uh, well, no, no, they're, they're tier two. I'm sorry. They're going to, I'm going to have some angry, angry fans talk about that. But um, tier three is kind of like 82nd Airborne, 101st Airborne elite units yeah. um, that have that sort of capability. But sorry, just continue. I want to get people. Well, first of all, that tier system is true. And that's unique to the U.S. military. Um, the, the mercenary world also has a, has a similar tier system. But tier one is also would you know includes like tier two and some of tier three for the American. I mean, American has a very high bar, but yeah. yeah. So so JSOC is you know a lot of tier one. It's like you know arguably, I mean, as President George W. Bush says, you know JSOC is awesome, and they are. They are they are our lethal dagger in the night. Um, they're controversial for all sorts of other reasons we can discuss, but. Um, when you think of, you know, black helicopters and, you know, getting stuff done, that's JSOC, right? And so we had JSOC, you know, in this position, you know, 15 or so JSOC there with another, let's say 10, like 20 clicks away. Um, and we have like 400, basically a, a Soviet style mech battalion um that's mercenary now attacking them in the middle of the night and both sides were caught by surprise the the u.s you know called in to to uh the pentagon saying what do we do went right to secretary of defense mattis's you know bedroom in washington dc at middle of the night i assume i i don't know for a fact but i'm assuming and um and I am told his order was to annihilate them, 
to mm-hmm. annihilate them. And so we had... It's kind of a our, Barry, you know, Barry McCaffrey moment. That's right. That's right. And he and our our best troops called in our best aviation. They called in, you know, AC-130 attack gunships, which are these, uh, you know, flying, you know, uh, military, like, I don't know how would you describe, what's an AC-130? How would you describe an AC-130? It's a fixed wing aircraft, but with propellers. The, well, yeah, but it has like heavily armed Gatling guns and 105 right. millimeters. It's like death from above. So for people who don't know, 105 millimeter was the the type of cannon that they put on the first M1. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is a it's a flying, you know, death machine of machine guns and stuff. They had uh, Apache helicopters, drones, uh, I think F-15 strike eagles, all sorts of stuff. And we systematically annihilated, we killed more Russians or Russian speakers that night than any single night during the Cold War. We also and recorded remember, their radio traffic too, right? Yeah, we did. And, 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 I, and um, I think somebody, somebody in, like kind of beamed it back to Russia. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Well, and also the, you know, talking to the Wagner side, I talked to people I know there and they're like, who are there? One of his, you know, one guy who was a, a leading of a, a, I guess like a platoon or a company says like, you know, he and most of his, he got, he got injured. Um, his, his number two got shot. He said uh, he saw like a hellfire missile just go zooming over his head and 150, 150 meters from him blew the turret off of a seven of a T-72 tank. And he got burned from from he called a blue fire from that um and and it was systematic because they the russians didn't have any air defense weapons at all and they were just sitting there um that said the russians didn't it didn't happen in like five minutes as you hollywood would have us it the, the main battle still took two hours the wagner group did not just instantly wither away they fought and, and, you know, the whole thing from start to finish started around midnight and ended around 7 a.m., with the main battle being about two hours. And, you know, it's okay. I think we should be proud of, of that, right? But what happens if it's like a thousand Russian mercenaries going up against the Virginia National Guard with no air support? It'll be like a Mogadishu moment. And the thing that the reason why Putin likes to use these covert units, whether they be special forces or these fake separatist units or mercenaries, is because they give you plausible deniability. Yep. And the only reason we didn't go to World War III in February 2018 is that both sides, both the Americans and you know, both Washington and Moscow, could walk away from and say, oh, they're dirty mercenaries. So that is actually how modern war happens. It happens in the shadows with weapons that give you plausible deniability or strategic deception. And that matters more today than just raw lethal, lethal power, raw firepower. And it allows, so that's what we're seeing. You, yeah. And it allows you to take more risks because you don't have it to lowers the barriers of entry to war. That's right. It right. lowers the barrier right. of entry to war. And it's not just for Putin, it's for everybody because everybody looks at this and says, hmm, I could do that too. Because if you could deny it, I mean, look, our intelligence people, our experts are not fooled, but they're not the audience. You're not trying to fool the CIA 
you're trying to fool the American and the Russian public. And mm -hmm. that is the key. So because we live in an information age, it changes our way of warfare. And it means that things that can provide strategic deception with these cyber attacks or disinformation or things like mercenaries and uh, special forces that give you plausible deniability, things that can create and, and exploit the sort of the, the fog of war, that's how you win. So Ukraine is a really weird exception because it's like a tank on tank thing. It's totally visible, but that's not what's, that's not what Putin's end game is with Ukraine. Right. He's, he's using tanks as a kabuki theater, not actually how to take over territory. Cause we know how he does that. And it's using like these, these sneaky and spooky ways. So let's, so what do you think his aim, aim, aside from testing the resolve of the U.S. administration, what do you think kind of the, let's bracket it. I don't want to, I don't want to kind of put you in a, kind of a, a place where you, you're, what, what, what is kind of the minimum end, end state that he's looking for? And then what do you think is the maximalist end state? Like where, like yeah. how far can he, might he conceivably go and let's yeah. let's talk with the minimalist first and then we can okay. get to the maximalist well let's before we get to that let's he's got two goals right now one and you've mentioned these one is to test american resolve to be a superpower that it's going to defend its its title its heavyweight title so everybody in the world from putin to the Balt, the Balkans and Balt, you know, Baltics, excuse me, and you're in NATO to the, you know, to the island of Taiwan. They're all watching this mm -hmm. because if we back down to this bully, then we're going to be seen as like that's a win for Putin. That's what he's after right now, and he's testing it on Ukraine, which is a non-NATO country. So it's you know, it's one thing if he's testing it on Lithuania, which is part of NATO, because that might trigger the the Article 5, the Three Musketeers rule of NATO, like all for right. one, one for all. Um, and we're still not sure, NATO is not sure if America will back out. I mean, let's not forget that Donald Trump, 50% of the country about voted for like, why are we sticking our necks out for other foreign countries? They're not, it's not our fight. Um, so, you know, there's that. Uh, the other thing he's trying to do, Putin's trying to do is he's trying like you said before, he does see the greatest tragedy and try not to vomit in your mouth when you hear this. He says the greatest tragedy of the 20th century was the fall of the USSR. And that has always been his goal is to, to recreate it, but with czar Putin. And so this is his number one legacy issue. So between these two objectives, what is he going to do in Ukraine? The maximalist position is that he encircles Kiev with his tanks, take occupies the country, and and demands uh, a hard regime change under like sort of a marry me or die type of thing. Yeah, where put, they put a gun, could put a gun to your head, and that's you know, right. Pick 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 black, right? Like right, pick exactly. And, you know, there's questions about could the Soviet, oh, Soviets, could the, 
Ukraine is a bad slip. <laughs> you're, you're, the Russians, you're falling into your own Could the Russians, because the Ukraines were Soviets, but not willing ones, right? Right, right. Ukrainians have Russian, 40 years right. of, of problems with with uh, with Russia. In fact, Russia used to call it Little Russia. It says everything about it. But like, you know, do the you know the, T. Lawrence talks. Lawrence of Arabia talks about algebraic factors, which really means this: Do you have enough troops to to occupy and control all that space and territory? And there's a there's been a lot of inside expertise that a hundred thousand troops. Don't don't cut it, but that's not important. What the, the chain? The idea is, if you can blitzkrieg to the to the outside the the walls of Kiev, show the world what you're capable of. Have a forcible, you know, you can perp walk out, you know, the the current leaders and put your own people in. You know, it's sort of like Hungary 1956 or Czechoslovakia 1968, and that's that's a big win for Putin, right? Because he wants to be USSR. Or, or. Or Iraq, two thousand three. That's right. That's, right. Yeah. We went in with one hundred and fifteen thousand, right. something like that. And you know, we thought that I guess the leaders at the time thought that was going to be enough, and it was to kick the door in, but it wasn't enough to stop the insurgency. But there's a difference between Iraq and and today is that Ukraine has been intermarried with Russia in all sorts of ways. Right. Willingly and not for the past 400 plus years. It's not like America goes to Iraq and it's, it's you know, it's literally one versus the other. And um, yeah, you know, and my, my are, analogy was very superficial. <laughs> no, but, sure, the, the, sure. the, but the point is, is that if you do have, a, I mean, I, I just don't know if, if Ukraine's going to go into complete insurgency mode or if it's going to say, okay, we'll, we'll live with it. We've been here before, you know, so that's, that's the question. Um, so the max, that's the maximalist, I think, right. is that, um, you know, he, he doesn't, I don't think he's going to annex Ukraine as like no. a part of the new federated Russia, but it'll be like Georgia in 2008 or something yep. like that. And, um, and I think that that is kind of what he would like to do. Um, you know, uh, yeah, the, the minimalist approach with well, a very, okay, so the Biden administration keeps on threatening like really bad things are gonna happen to you, really bad things. They don't express what those things are, at least in public. In private, they probably have. Um, a lot of them will be economic sanctions, but here's the problem with economic sanctions is that First, economic sanctions are blunt instruments. Yep. Second of all, they can, they can take a long time to really feel the effect. It's not like instant pain, right? Some can be, but some, you know. And third is that elites somehow always manage to escape the worst parts of economic sanctions. Which, Just like elites don't pay taxes somehow in whatever country you're in. I mean, go figure. I mean, this is where leads, you, this is where your leads, expertise takes over, Sean. <laughs> which leads to an interesting point. So did yeah. you see what the Russian government said about the sanctions? So they made a public statement to the effect of we, we, we will not accept individual economic sanctions against Putin himself. Did you notice that? No, I didn't see that. Wow. Very, very interesting. So when a government, when a, because that's, to your yeah. point, I think that's what the U.S. government's approach is to right. kind of reduce the bluntness of that instrument by focusing right. on Putin and making it a personal um, right. cost to him. But yeah, go well, not just a personal cost to him, but personal cost to the elites. I mean, 
you can sanction Russia all you like, and it's just the poor people who are going to starve in the streets, right? But if you can say there are elites that that Putin doesn't have to answer to, but he can't ignore either. Okay, there are elites. And if you can put the squeeze on them, they will put the squeeze on Putin. Right? So that's a strategic logic. And I don't I don't have the knowledge, the expertise knowledge about knowing what kind of classified sanctions we can target. I mean, removing them from Swift and stuff, him from Swift and stuff like that. There's there's certain things, you know, but remember, this is a legacy item for Putin, right? This is a legacy item for him. And if he backs down, the costs to his, you know, think about autocrats, there are a lot of its ego. So the cost is ego, you know, what is worse for him? Taking a hit, so he's going from a multi-billionaire just to a, a poor, less multi-billionaire or, you know, or, or you know, re regaining Ukraine because there's a lot of fervent Russian nationalism right now in Russia, especially in the military. And the last thing you want as an autocrat is a military coup d'etat because you were soft. So there's a lot of angles to this that nobody, including Putin, has figured out, in my opinion. But Putin's a very savvy player, and we cannot underestimate him. I mean, he took his country from nothing in 1999 to, you know, now he's, he's pissing off the world and arguably getting away with it. So you have to give some credit where credit is due. I know colleagues of mine in Washington hate to hear me say that, but let's be honest with ourselves. I mean, this guy is no... He's not a knuckle dragger and he's a gambler and he's got a pretty good read on situations. I'm not going to say he's going to win, but I think that, you know, to Vindeman's point, the maximalist approach is it's on the table. It's not just a remote. I think right now the government of Ukraine is trying to downplay that, but I think they're doing that for their domestic political consumption. So people don't panic. Yeah. Um, so I think, meanwhile, I think their ambassador to the U.S. is saying, you got to save us, do sanctions now, do these. Um, so that's the maximalist approach. Yeah, I, uh, the, just an interesting thing to, to share with the audience. Apparently, I've been told, um, I don't know if it's true or not, but somebody in a kind of governmental or inter, an international um, body, Apparently, one of his early, you know, his early KGB performance reviews indicated that he had a tendency to underestimate the risk. <laughs> <laughs> and interesting. I, That's interesting. And, story, and, and, yeah. to your, and to your point, I would say that there is, you know, aside from, you know, Kim Jong Un, and maybe not even Kim Jong Un, no international leader has played the hand that they've been dealt more. Uh, skillfully than Vladimir yeah. Putin. Yeah. None. No, it's true. Although, you know, you know, past is not always prelude to the future either. And this is the yeah. first time he's really taken on the U.S. mano a mano. And you know, we could look any, you know, his timing is also immaculate. He knows what's going on in our country. And he may be partially responsible for it through disinformation to find existing cleavages and help artificially stir up a culture war between red and blue in our country. Uh, he is not, he is a lot of countries, you know, uh, you know, China's doing that, but Russia is best in breed at this. And, you know, his timing is, is not, uh, you know, it's obviously not random. That said, I mean, 
the American people, if there's one thing that's going to unite our Congress, it's this. Yeah. Right. And so this is the threat that, you know, he's gambling. Um, and so the question really is, what's the minimalist thing? What, what's the minimum he could live with and walk away from? And I don't think it's going to be, um, okay, we'll just, we'll just drive our tanks home from the border. Yeah. Unless, unless it's a big, um, do you remember like in, in World War II, General Patton was in charge of like this fake division in England, right before D-Day of blow up tanks and blow up airplanes to fake out the Germans because the Germans thought the D-Day crossing would be a pas de Calais, which is right yep. rather than Normandy. And, and, uh, and that ruse worked so well that even when D-Day occurred, they still didn't reposition all their forces to fight off allied forces in D-Day. So it, it is, there is a scenario, I don't know if it's likely or not, that they drove those tanks up there, but most of them are unmanned and sitting there to look like they're ready to pounce. And there's been some security experts in Ukraine who have been watching Russia very closely for the past 10 years, who've also noted there are not any, like not enough field hospitals to support an actual invasion, you know, mm. and other logistical support. So they think that some of this is just posturing like patent before D-Day. So if that's true, I don't know if it's not true or not, but like that might be a reason he might, you know, let his hand down a bit. So I could, I, so again, having fought like the Russians in my entire time when I was in, in the military, we did, so the Russians call it Maskarovka, right? It's been around since you know as far you know i don't maybe, maybe since at least the communists probably you know, most likely before that but it goes all back wars, to the 14th century actually yeah all were all the strategic wars culture deception. yep yeah. all wars deception and you know what what i think uh this could you know ultimately so so in, in the in the case that so we would use these deception turrets right we would uh use all sorts of false minefields things like that um, all the time, right? We'd we'd use uh, the other things that I can't repeat on this podcast because right. we asked about, you know, we did something to the Longbow Apache that had them like hovering all night and attacking inert cheesecloth, you know, tanks. <laughs> but we did something that I can't I can't really repeat. But it was so effective when we asked to look, review the cockpit video, they wouldn't share it with us. Wow. So, so that is certainly the case. That said, um, if I were playing devil's advocate in terms of the field hospital argument, why not just kind of just take that off of the, when, when you do the invasion, you just use the economy, right? Kiev right. has a lot of educated people, a lot of hospitals and things like that. You just seize hospitals and you put your, right. put your soldiers in there, right? Or, so, or they don't think there'll be casualties, much casualties. I don't think they're that dumb. <laughs> I don't. I don't. Although I have yeah. heard that, uh, what's your take on what happened in Kazakhstan? Like right before. Like well, I think ago. I think uh, Kazakhstan was in a political crisis, and uh, the regime, fearing for regime security over national security, reached out to Big Brother, which is Russia, to help save the regime. But they made a Faustian bargain, which is you can enter under pretext of peacekeeping. But we all know that. Russians are really hard to get out of the house once they're in the house. And so I think this goes to, again, Putin's vision of 
reconstituting the former USSR, but under his vision, his ideology, it's not going to be communist anymore. It's going to be Putinist. And, you know, so I think that is, that's what that's about. Now let's step back and look kind of long-term from a Russian perspective. Their demographic situation, they're actually, the population is actually shrinking. The Russian Far East, which, you know, many of the troops that they moved here was from the Eastern military district. But the Russian Far East is, you know, rich gold resources, uh, iron, uh, lumber, et cetera, is, you know, there's a law he passed back in 2016. I think it's the law of the Far Eastern Hectare, Hectare or something like that. They can't get enough people to, to move there. Meanwhile, the Chinese population to the south of the border is 16 times what it is to the north. So the question is, is when does that, you mentioned, the, you know, there's, there's some conflict between, you know, historically, hundreds of years of conflict between the Chinese and Russians. Yeah. When do you think, if at all, that becomes an issue between those two? That's a great question. So I think, I think Democrat, uh, demographics increasingly into the, 20, the mid 21st century will be a cause for conflict. Whether it's mega cities or you know resource conflicts and the people around them, um, and I, I don't you know it's hard to know because you know look, look Xi Jinping, Putin, and like Erdogan of Turkey. I mean they their their nations have centuries of of bad blood between them, but you have three autocrats playing real politic for the short-term game, but they don't, you know, what's the long-term risk? And I don't know how that ends in places like that. I don't, I can't see China, you know, taking territory there the way Putin took, um, you know, the Crimea by force, but maybe they'd figure out some deal, but, you know, it's hard to know. I mean, um, you know, we can't remember, you can't forget during the Cold War, you know, Mao and, different Soviet leaders really did not get along. And this whole population density was still at the core of it, which is why Kissinger said, you know, let's, let's separate those two. And Nixon, who was a very strong anti-communist, we're going to send you as our good faith, you know, ferry to go do it. And it worked, you know, I mean, say Kissinger is extremely controversial did it work? But well, it did. It it separated, you know, in China's hindsight. And, in, in hindsight, like back in then, in 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 high, like, if you stop at the end of the Cold War, it was absolutely effective. But if you look at it from then and kind of the the contention that we could liberalize China and they could become democratic. Oh, that's I that's th- different. Yeah, I, I, I think it was. I think it was the beginning of. Yeah. A world where there's a, you know, we've opened it up to having a kind of a new world order run by the Chinese, which well, if you look at what's true. going on in Xinjiang, it's once the Chinese control a situation, they ignore the rules. Right. Of course, they have their rules. Now, I, I, my point is that Kissinger only wanted to break up the communist blocks in splinter it. Right. He achieved that in the Cold War, but then after the Cold War, political science and economic economists had this ridiculous theory the that if you 
<laughs> well, there's many ridiculous theories that came out of them. The the fall of the Berlin Wall, like yeah, the end of history by Fukuyama, who who still has play. He runs the Hoover Institute for crying out loud. <clears throat> Figure me that. It's like it's like having Bernie Madoff in charge of you know some big bank and in, in Wall Street. It just shows like there's no accountability in the in the, the high think world, I suppose. Um, but there was this idea in the 1990s that if you liberalize countries' economies, you will somehow it'll cause their political system to liberalize too. And that's absolutely not true. I mean, it's I don't even know what that was, what evidence they had for that. So this idea that if you if you if you made a free economy in a place like China, you admitted them to the WTO, that would somehow they'd end up as a democracy in 10 years. And it's, you know, it's it's theory in search of fact. And but that was the craze. I mean, if you were like a tenured up for tenure as a professor in 1994 and you said, no, that would not be true, you would never get hired tenure. And this is one of the my pet peeves of peer review, et cetera, is that it, it really it emboldens groupthink and groupthink can be very dangerous. And there's groupthink going on right now about the situation in Ukraine. People are thinking about it like it's like a neo-Cold War and it's, you know, that, that is a, a very dangerous trope and trap to get into. Now, what do you think, um, you know, as we, as we fast forward, what, do you think there's any situation where Russia, Russia's talked off the brink? Where they, as you said, take, take, their, take their tanks, and as I said, they take their bayonets after sitting on them. I don't. <laughs> not unless they got some secret deal from the U.S. That, they're, that nobody's sharing with the media. I mean, does that make sense? Like, if they suddenly got in the tanks and drove north and got away from there, and Putin doesn't really give a, a meaningful press conference, you could take away two things. Somehow we out-negotiated them. I think it's kind of like, not I'm not sure. I don't, you know, maybe Anthony, maybe Anthony Blinken's that good. I don't think he is, but. Well, but I think has been in that spot for how long? I know, exactly. I just, I just, and they have, you know, they have a less complex world many than we do. Cause you know, they're, we're dealing with China and Russia and holding a NATO alliance together and an American public that's fractured and, you know, so, and they're, they're preying on all that. So it is possible that secret terms were made and secret concessions were given on our part to Russia. And they're secret because the White House knows it would be completely unpolitical and unpalatable to the American public. Yep. You know, and maybe to Ukraine. I mean, <clears throat> one of the things we hear about now is the Munich Conference of 38, where, you know, you know, France, England, Germany, and Italy came to to decide in munich the fate of czechoslovakia or that you know, yeah, peace in our time. who was not involved he was not invited the czechs right and so this is one of the fears of ukraine and that that something like that could happen and and just to be clear i i just as a caveat i am um you know 20 years ago there were these, these things called the neocons in washington dc oh yeah right oh yeah like Rumsfeld and basically the birth, the first foreign policy crew of the Bush 43 administration. Yeah, Wolfowitz you know. and, and yeah, all those guys. All those guys. They call themselves the neocons and what they would do to, 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 they were bullies. And what they would do is that anytime you disagreed with them, they would say it's Munich 38. 
you're Adolf Hitler or something like that. They just extremely like you're talking about, well, you know, we build at more at wells in Africa. Right? That's Munich 38, you know. So yep, I know, at, you know, it's, at Hitlerium, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. And so I don't want to be confused with those idiotic neocons be, who, who created these two unwinnable wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Ukrainian, but so, so break, break. The Ukrainians do have this fear that some deal will be made to preserve NATO, to preserve Russian face and American interests that will exclude them and they will be the bill payer. Because to be frank about it, nobody they're like the least you know nobody cares about them if, if you look at the hierarchy of political machiavellian interest they rank last and um you know and that's from a realist point of view that's like well it sucks to be you but it, that's that's the, the world and so that's that's their fear well here's a here's a question and i'll tell you what my viewpoint is i want to hear what yours is yeah. um over the last 20 years, we allowed NATO to expand all the way up to the Russian border and they're near abroad. Traditionally, they've always had some sort of a buffer, um, particularly, and it didn't stop the Germans in World War II. So at the same time, we withdrew forces from Europe and, and continue to, to position them to the Pacific, right? The Pacific pivot which you know, I don't necessarily disagree with. However, kind of the military strategy was, in my opinion, completely and utterly and incompetently decoupled from the political strategy, even though NATO is a you know, military organization, right? Yeah. So at the, at the end of the day, we, we, we increased the threat to Russia by moving right up to their border, while at the same time, completely and utterly reduced our ability to defend it. Right. So that's so part of this in the long term is our own fault. But I want to yeah. hear what you think about this. Yeah. So this is what happened. The Berlin Wall falls down. And there's some immediate relevant questions like what do you do with NATO? And the Warsaw Pact, which is the Soviet version, that got disbanded immediately. And really, NATO should have been disbanded too, if you ask me. I mean, like there had no... Right. It, it had served its purpose, let's move on. But for a variety of political reasons and economic reasons and reasons that have little to do with security, well, bureaucratic people reasons, decide to keep it. Right? And bureaucratic the, inertia. The, the iron law, yeah, the iron law of bureaucracy, right? They never yeah. get smaller, they so, always get larger. Right. That's right, bureaucracy does its thing. They keep it, but NATO transforms, it's, it gets controlled by diplomats. And it becomes, instead of a, of a cooperative security arrangement, it becomes a pro-democracy instrument. So they used NATO to democratize Eastern Europe, which of course made Moscow even more infuriated. And then Moscow, Russia has this centuries old identity crisis. Are we Slavs or are we Europeans? Do we face West, do we face East? You look at different czars and it's it's always there and is there a hybrid possible and putin this is also what putin is thinking about too and also his he is like you know the defender or if you will you know quote the pope unquote of the eastern orthodox church well, don't they have a two-headed eagle is there yeah exactly i mean he yeah. he is the defender of of what? you know both 
Slaw, you know, ethnic Russians everywhere, whether you know, Sudetenland issue, the whether they're in Latvia, half of Latvia is or more or less is, is ethnic Russians. Uh, same with Western Ukraine, and, and he, he that's his pretext, but also or East, Eastern Ukraine, idea, Eastern Ukraine, yeah, Eastern Ukraine, yeah, Eastern Ukraine, yeah. and but also like I am the defender of the Orthodox Church, and and this is also partly why, um, you know, Tsar Nicholas defended Serbia in 1914. Um, Real quick aside, yeah. how, what do you mm-hmm. think? How accurate do you think Samuel Huntington was? This clash of so Sam Huntington was one of my professors when we were at Harvard. Uh, I was fortunate to be one of his, you know, <laughs> one of his last few classes. So Sam Huntington has a very famous uh, and controversial and best-selling book called Clash of Civilizations, where civilizations clash. And I, I'm not a Huntington. Um, I'm not a Huntington fan, at least Clash of Civilizations fan, because, okay, that sounds really good on a whiteboard far away, but what exactly is a civilization? How do you, how do you, like, look, you know, how do you disperse those two things? I mean, how do you, if you go look at Sunni and Shia in Iraq, there's no, there's no bright line. There's a lot of intermarriage, a lot of intercultural things. Same with Ukraine and Russia. I mean, there are Ukrainians who are pro-Russian and and it's not about Putin, it's about their historical identity. So I think that, you know, I, I, you know, it's, you could say like, oh, there's, there's China versus America, you know, you, you can make that argument because it's very blatant and a lot of people do, but here's my, my opinion about this. It's, it's a lazy argument. It's, it's like us versus them. Well, it's and very I think if, yeah. And I think that ultimately it, world politics is so much more sophisticated and complex. And if you view it through an us versus them, that's where you get like things like Stalin and, you know, some of the greatest blunders in the 20th century were created by leaders with an us versus them mentality. Hitler is one of them. I mean, I don't always want to go back to Hitler because that's like, so, so as soon as somebody says Every, Hitler, everything like, goes okay, back I, to Hitler. Time out. Yeah, I'm tapping out. That's, that's stupid. Okay. You're an idiot. But, um, you know, I, I think, um, I think it's a very, I mean, the, the military in Washington loved the clash of civilizations when it came, you know, actually really after 9-11, because it, it viewed like, okay, here's this Middle East Muslim civilization, which, you know, extreme version of it, which we despise. And we, we are the, you know, we're the city of the hill. We have, we're the neocons, American exceptionalism. So I, I think the clash of civilizations is something worth pondering, but I don't go all the way down the road with Sam. I I got said Dr. Huntington. Doctor. <laughs> well, Huntington. I, I didn't call you Doctor. Because I knew him. I didn't call you Dr. <laughs> McCabe, but I, I will make sure. No, but it's because we're 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 friends and drinking pals and peers and colleagues. But yeah, for me, I'll just say Professor Huntington. That's what I called him when I knew him. So okay, so what I what I want to do now is just take a quick break and then I want to go into a, a whole discussion of, of your book the new rules for war i want you to give you a chance to kind of explain what it's about how it's different um and kind of what the reception's been etc so I'm gonna-